Oh, by the way, Mike, Pearl told me to tell you that your movie this week is Invasion of the Neptune Men. Enjoy. See ya. time we watched season eight episode 19 invasion of the neptune men in which electronic waves from neptune make us watch the movie backwards (laughs) but first well not follow-up this time just a little bit of news there's no follow-up because i haven't released the last episode yet at time of recording things happen sometimes schedules are wonky sometimes it's fine it's fine it'll come out probably tomorrow you were too busy celebrating gamuary i i understand completely i'm still drunk on my gamuary cocktails <laughs> but there have been some exciting things in the world of msc3k and msc3k related properties especially shorts for over at the gizmoplex we were treated with A festival of shorts, including the dropping of two new shorts. And the Mads, on their side of things, put out their 10th night of shorts, which seems like far too many. I mean, not far too many (laughs) in that I don't want so many. Far too many in the sense that, have they really done 10? Apparently they have. It's been a wild couple years, and I didn't realize they had done so many. Yeah, it's kind of awesome that they have. My goodness. So this festival of short, they dropped two of them on the Gizmoplex, or there just have been two since we last recorded? So they did a special night of shorts, including some classic shorts, and then they included two new shorts. And one of them isn't as new a short as it could be, because they did a re-riffing of something that they have riffed before. They took a second look at Mr. B Natural. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, no. How was it? It was pretty good. Um, They show more of the short. They show the entire short uncut. So you can see a few extra horrifying scenes. Oh. (laughs) And also, uh, there's a bit of a surprise because who's riffing it this time? I don't know. Who? Take a guess. Um, Oh, wasn't it Pearl? It was not Pearl. That was a different one. Ooh, shucks. Outsmarted again. Um, Jonah? Not Jonah. You're going to have to tell me. I can't guess a third time and be wrong again. I've played that game with you before, and I don't like losing. So go. (laughs) Who is it? Kinga and Max. (gasps) Oh my god, that sounds like so much fun. We got a brief, brief glimpse of it at the very end of season 12, back on Netflix. At the end of that, there's some plot that gets hatched, and it ends with a shot of them being trapped in the theater while Jonah makes his escape or whatever. I can't remember the plot details because plot. Um, But (laughs) now we get to see the entire experience of them as quote-unquote like edited out footage from season 12 or something. (laughs) That's an excellent premise. I enjoy yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> it, it's pretty sweet. It's fun to see them in the theater. Yeah. The Mads also did a short that is familiar to MST3K viewers. In this one, they re-riffed Why Study Industrial Arts. <gasps> oh my goodness. That's the one with the locker room talk about how awesome Woodshop is, right? Uh, <laughs> yep. It's the weirdly homoerotic <laughs> one. <laughs> 
I, th- I thought I covered that with the locker room and woodshop talk. <laughs> yep, yep. If you want to see, uh, if you want to see fifties teenagers in short shorts, I guess they're boxer shorts, white boxer shorts, t-shirts in a locker room, talking about the thrills of woodshop. <laughs> This is the short for you. It was a very good night. It was a very good evening. I got to watch it live and hang out with some of our fans on the Discord server and talk about how delightful we found everything. They are still doing good work, the mans. Go go check them out if you have lost track of them. Excellent. But we can't stay talking about the Mads forever. <laughs> well, we could, but... We could. We could. I mean, wouldn't that be more pleasant than talking about the movie that's on our plate today? Well... Yes, probably, but we'll find something to talk about that might be more exciting. (laughs) Okay. This time we watch Season 8, Episode 19, Invasion of the Neptune Men. Gamera must be on vacation, so Kenny decides to spend time with his father, Dr. Tanawe, and attend school, taught by Dr. Tanawe's assistant, Mr. Tabana. Here, Kenny meets up with a relentless gang of boys who terrorize the nation of Japan with their short, short wearing ways. They cavort through the fields and use their relationships with the nation's scientists to enter top security areas. And it's a good thing they do. An invasion from Neptune is on the way. Kenny's gang of boys do the investigative journalism no one else will. When a satellite crash lands nearby, the boys run out to see what went wrong. No doubt their instruction by Mr. Tabana has given them an intricate knowledge of satellites. But wait! When they find the site of the supposed crash, they find a rocket ship instead, and aliens in shiny, shiny outfits. As the aliens close in menacingly, the Prince of Space shows up and saves them. Wait, oh no, no, it's not the Prince of Space, but Space Chief, so named by the boy gang he has saved. Seems like Japan has an awful lot of alien invasions and specifically trained caped superheroes to counter the attacks. The boys return and inform their dad and teacher about the aliens. Fortunately, Mr. Tabana believes them because, I don't know, perhaps he's the space chief in disguise? The other adults come to the conclusion that this is a conflict between nations and jump straight to world war as a solution, all because they don't believe children. God! Mr. Tabana does, however, and science saves the day. While Mr. Tanawe suffers a mysterious illness, probably connected to the shenanigans inflicted by our alien invaders from Neptune, Mr. Tabana designs and constructs an electric force field to deflect their spaceships, stalling the invasion force for now. Dr. Tanaway recovers and confers with Japan's leaders while Mr. Tabana does the science work, and the boy gang runs. I mean, they run everywhere. The fields, the construction site, the sewage plant, the town, the missile silo. These boys are like Tom Cruise. 
Team Neptune returns and uses subterfuge to destroy the force field. Team Science races to create a new kind of missile to counter their offensive. Team Boy Gang run around. Team Space Chief, which is a team of one I know, rescues the boys again. Team Neptune blows up a lot of buildings and causes some major damage. Team Space Chief single-handedly takes down a slew of smaller alien attack craft. And then Mr. Tabana rejoins Team Science and blows up Team Neptune, saving the planet once and for all. Somewhere off screen, Gamera gives a cheer. Someone else saved those boys at last. Best vacation ever. The end. Meanwhile, on the satellite of love, Crow and Tom are reading National Geographic and learning about eyelash mites, and they are absolutely grossed out. So they get the nanites to remove Mike's eyelash mites. They have a fight. Eyelash mites win. But happily, the nanites, being nanites, can reconstruct themselves. Meanwhile, all right, we're back in Roman times. We learned last time that Bobo is the Mad God, except it's actually Mad Goth, which makes a heck of a lot less sense in this context, but whatever. Anyway, Bobo shows up at yet another Roman dinner party, and turns out he's very popular with the ladies. The Mads are depressed by this, and they decide to commit suicide. But then they decide not to, lest Bobo's antics warp the fabric of time and space itself, which would mean no more chicken-and-a-biscuit crackers for Pearl. Anyway, after some movie, the bots celebrate the fact that this movie was made in Japan by presenting a traditional Japanese kabuki play titled Neil Simon's The Sunshine Boys. Mike says he prefers no theater, and this causes some confusion because the word for this form of traditional Japanese theater sounds rather a lot like the common English word, no. So it all becomes a chance for them to rewrite that Abbott and Costello sketch. During the movie, Mr. Tabana offers some techno babble to explain what the aliens are up to. So then, the Roji Penny Complex. Roji Panty Complex? But then, Tom comes down with a bad case of the Roji Panty Complex. So, Mike waves panties at him, and Crow gets kinda jealous. Meanwhile, Pearl and Brain Guy try to remind Bobo of his true identity, but nothing doing. After even more movie, Mike and the bots are panicking about how bad this movie is. They, too, wish for death. But then they have a visitor on the ship, the Phantom Dictator of Crankor. He's come back to conquer them. But grateful for this reminder of happier times, the crew welcome him gladly. And this leads to a sweet friendship between the Dictator and Mike and the bots. When the movie finally, finally ends, Mike and the bots read from the suggestion box that Crow installed, which he then filled with suggestions for Japan. It's, uh, it's not great. Anyway, down in Rome, Bobo is signing autographs, and Pearl smacks him on the head with a stone tablet, and thus conked, he remembers who he is, and he reveals to the Romans that Pearl and Brain Guy aren't gods at all. Oh no, what will happen? Tune in next time when we finally conclude the Season 8 plot arc. 
But in the meantime, what do you think, sirs? Oh my, Chris, did you did you find this movie as horrible and and just awful as uh, Mike and the Bots did? Yes. Really? <laughs> I mean, no, not as much as they did. <laughs> They, they they were sort of over the top, and they've certainly watched worse films. And there's it's sometimes kind of random when they decide to get all cranky about how bad a film is. And it's like, this is not the worst film sure. you've seen. You just are having a bad day. That's why you keep writing sketches in which everybody wants to kill themselves. Oh, wow. <laughs> if that's why they're writing those sketches. <laughs> but I did find this to be Prince of Space, but without the charming chicken men. <gasps> That's so funny because I was like, I enjoy this more than Prince of Space because I have that funny five boy, like boy gang running around. It was like, it was like, um, stand by me only without the leeches. (laughs) Which are the best part of that movie. No, no. (laughs) The leeches are not the best part of stand by me. Everybody knows the pie eating contest is the best part of stand by me. Not that there's a pie eating contest in this movie, but... I I don't know. I like this one better. I I can't. I think it must be because it didn't have the constant repetition of ha ha. Your weapons have no effect on me. Ha ha. Your weapons have no effect on me. Ha ha. Your weapons have no yeah. effect on me. Like I was very pleased not to have that. Although I do have to say the last like fifteen minutes of like. I don't know, Star Wars-esque, pew, 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 pew. The same airstrike footage happening again and again. (laughs) Yeah, that I could have done without. But leading up to that was more charming for me than Prince of Space. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just in a better mood. Who can say? Who can say? I I definitely found this to be weaker than Prince of Space because I just like the chicken people more, even if there is a lot more repetition in that. Um, I also decided that I would watch a bit of this movie Unrift with the original Japanese voice acting and with the uh, original aspect ratio because this movie is in super widescreen like a proper camera film and it is cropped to heck for this really dark print and the American dubbers are terrible. (laughs) I'm not surprised. (laughs) And I didn't watch the entire movie. I I meant to fast forward and catch how good or bad the final footage of airstrikes repeated again and again is. But I will say the first 15, 20 minutes, perfectly charming and like well shot. And the kids are doing a good job with their acting. And and there's some joke somewhere in there that that, uh, Mike or the bots make about how, you know, you can't tell any of the kids apart. But actually, no, you can totally tell them apart in the original. I could tell them apart in this one. I mean, they didn't all have names, and that was kind of unfortunate. Only Kenny had a name. But, you know, all the rest of them... They, they were totally distinguishable. I, I enjoyed the, the boy gang. Again, I think the group of the five boys was what made it charming for me. Well, they're even better in the original. Let me oh, just put it that way. Man. How did Space Chief get translated in the, um, in the dub that you were watching? Did they also call it Space Chief? Because that just seems really weird to me. No, in the original, he's called Iron Sharp. And he's called that in English, Iron Sharpa, or something like that. I can't do it right, but you know what I mean? Like, it's 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 Japanese people using an English phrase in a weird way, because Iron Sharp, really? But I don't know. I, I love it. I think it's got a lot of great character to it, even if it doesn't quite work. I think it's way better than Space Chief, that's for certain. Good Lord. It is, but I totally understand why you might tweak that for the uh, English dub. Yeah. <laughs> 
wanted a name that was better than Space Chief. That's for <laughs> sure. I could not see my beloved gang of five boys running through the fields and then calling him Space Chief. I mean, that just seemed a little, it's a little bit of a downer. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Um, I also will say Roji Panty Complex Ugh. is, I don't know, I don't know what they're actually saying in that moment in the dub. They're making up some elements, roginum and tantanum in the original, apparently. Of course. Uh-huh. But, I mean, Roji Panty Complex is a weird thing to say. Yep. Agreed. They, they make a weird sketch out of it, but uh, still. That bit. I don't know. I don't know, Chris. That bit bugged. <laughs> you don't find the word <laughs> panty inherently funny? Apparently, I don't. Uh, even after seeing Bobo in trial as Matlock saying panties, 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 panties. Oh, that's right. Wow, they really are. A- They're on a panty kick in season eight. Yeah. Panty, panty, panty. Wow. If you want to wonder what was going on with their mood, panty, 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 Chris. It is not okay. I don't know whether, maybe they tried to save Panty when they were on Comedy Central and they couldn't, weren't allowed to or something. And then So what, this is like the South Park episode where they say the word S-H-T over and over and over again until a wormhole opens up to hell? Oh my goodness, seriously? (laughs) Now I have to decide whether I need to bleep out you spelling it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't sure how to approach that. (laughs) (laughs) You know that we bleep this, you've listened to this show. It's true. But it's been you a long time. You haven't said anything I've had to bleep. So. I know. Well, maybe you'll just bleep the eye or something. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, yeah, I I didn't like this episode. I'm going to be uh, upfront Aww. and say, for some reason, uh, several hours of making fun of Japan for nonsense reasons. Yeah. I don't know if there are legitimate reasons to do that, but they aren't here in this one. It's not because they eat weird food or have different traditions that, you know, I don't know, those aren't interesting. And and the weird animosity they feel towards them is not fun. Yeah, it makes it really um, amazing to me that they chose to do another Japanese movie that is so much like The Prince of Space, because I know those kinds of riffs really didn't land for you last time we talked about something from season eight, and I figured they'd be even worse for you this time around. I have to say the riffing I didn't enjoy, there are a couple that were funny, but uh, I enjoyed the movie better than The Prince of Space movie. I don't know. I can't explain it. So we've got a sketch in which Mike professes a deep and profound love of no theater. And the bots profess a deep and profound love of kabuki theater. Despite everything that they've said while riffing the movie about how crummy Japan is. I know. Isn't it weird? It's almost like they don't actually care about kabuki or no theater and just wanted to make a cheap pun that had been made millions of times before in order to fill out a two-minute sketch. But Chris, how dare you suggest such a thing? I'm sure they have a deep and enduring love of both kinds of theater. Although, I have to admit, I honestly don't know very much about either of those kinds of theater, so I can't speak to how... Uh, how good the costuming that they had on Tom and Crow and GPC are. I don't know a lot about it either, but I always meant to check it out. And so I decided to spend the last day or two 
checking it out, which makes me an expert ready to talk about it on ah, the podcast. Fantastic, Chris. I stand at the feet of the master. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to try to say a few things, and I'm going to get it wrong. And we'll have some links in the show notes for sources that can start you on your journey uh, of a day or two to learn about No and Kabuki, these centuries-old traditions that you can absolutely master speaking about in a day or two. Um, just go listen to our last episode again if you want things that we've thought about a lot in our lives. Um, <laughs> Anyway. Anyway. All right. No one Kabuki Theaters. Um, I had not seen any either, but I did decide to watch uh, an entire note play and uh, what turned out to be selected bits of a Kabuki play. And I enjoyed bits of both of them. Um, I guess I I should ask at at the top if you do know anything about these forms of theater. Honestly, I don't know anything about either form of theater. So... There's a documentary on Netflix about two very famous actors for one of these two kinds of theater, and it talks about their preparation, but I cannot recall (laughs) which of the two forms of theater it is, because the preparation of the makeup and the preparation of the characters and things aren't something I was familiar with so that I couldn't identify it for which. So as a complete novice, how what's what are the main differences between these two forms of theater? Excellent. Uh, It would appear to be Kabuki that they're looking at. I believe it's called Sing, Dance, Act. And it looks at two Kabuki artists who are longtime friends. Mm-hmm. So, what are the main differences? Okay, um, let's start with No. It is the older of the two. And we do get a little bit of information about it from Mike. Uh, it is from the Middle Ages. It is from the 14th century or thereabouts. And it is usually very traditional folk tales. And there are typically very few characters in these relatively simple tales. And the I guess the important thing, or I, I mean, I should be clear, this is all coming from a very, so to speak, Western perspective. But the the striking thing about No is that it's very slow paced. Oh. A No play that's an hour long will run to, I don't know, 10, 12 pages, it appears. And there's quite a lot of sort of chanted dialogue, so to speak, or maybe actually monologues in a sense. And then there are these just very small gestures that the performers make are very, very slow movements. It ends in a dance often, but the dance is incredibly, at least certainly in the one I saw, it's incredibly slow. And it's all very ritualized motions in the sense that like, you know, a slight tilt of the head is meant to indicate quite a lot sometimes. Oh my gosh. It sounds like you have to know a lot being an audience member in a performance like that about what things are supposed to indicate. Exactly. And the YouTube video that I was watching did have really good annotations to explain some of the details and what was going on. It didn't fully translate the libretto, so to speak, but it did tell you what was happening at each point and say, okay, what what they're doing now with their arms is indicating the wind sweeping them away or things like that. I can't even imagine being an audience member for this. I mean, the amount of knowledge you would have to have coming in, it it feels like this must have been for a very narrow audience. It was. Or, well, I mean, the simplified story of No is that it was for the elite. It was for the nobility. It was coming out of sort of religious rituals, and it is very inflected by both Buddhist and Shinto thought, as my understanding. Again, I have studied this for a day and a half. Um, Fair. 
And I guess I'll give you the example of the, the play that I saw, which is called Hagoromo, or The Feather Mantle. And the basic plot is that there's this guy who's walking along, and he sees a robe, like a really fancy robe, hanging on a tree. And he's like, ooh, this is nice. I will take this home, and it'll be the, the wonder of our town. You know, it'll be, it'll be something really special to bring home. And so he starts to take it, and then this woman, this sort of half-naked woman, nakedness is represented by particular ways that the gown is folded, that the gown that the actor is wearing is folded. Oh, my gosh. Uh, no actual nakedness, not at all. Um, Can I ask, did they have only male performers or did they have male and female performers? Or or did you find that in your research? It was all male performers, which is by and large traditional, although as you might expect, the history is a bit more complicated than that. Both in the olden days and today, there are female troops of no players. Okay. But it is thought of as a traditionally male thing. So there you okay. go. Um and so the woman, again played by a man wearing a wearing a mask on his face, because this is the main character coming out, is washing herself, I guess, comes out anyways, and sees the guy with the coat and says, Can you please give it back to me? Otherwise I won't be able to fly back to heaven with this feather-covered coat that you've taken from me. And the fisherman says, Okay, I will if you let me see one of those heavenly dances that I've heard so much about. And she says, sure. And then she dances and then she leaves. And I guess at some point she showers the world with presents, if I understood, if I, if I remember the subtitles explaining the fan movements correctly. And that's the entire thing. Huh. It took about an hour and about half of that was sort of the dance at the end, it felt like. And I enjoyed it, but... It is a real challenge to a novice watcher, a novice audience member who is not familiar with what's going on, and especially if you aren't accustomed to the music, because there's also musicians on stage. Yeah. There's some drummers and a, a flute player uh, on stage, and you know it's that music that is in Japanese traditional music modes. It, it sounds out of tune to Western ears who aren't accustomed to it, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not. It <laughs> very clearly isn't. Uh, I quite enjoyed the music, and, and when I was sort of having a difficult time appreciating what was going on on stage, I could sort of think about the music and, and let that wash over me, but I could imagine that a lot of viewers who are unfamiliar with this you know, tradition might have difficulty with that. How is Kabuki different just to be able to talk about the other kind of theater that they reference inside of the sketch? Sure. So Kabuki is a lot more vivacious, let's say, although it is also incredibly formalized. Mm -hmm. But Kabuki has a very different origin story. It was founded around 1603 by a woman named Izumo no Kuni. The story goes that she gathered sex workers, women sex workers, to perform in a dry riverbed, this all-female troupe, and it just became incredibly popular to do this kind of play-dance combination thing. Um, and so it became sort of institutionalized in uh, the Red Light District, uh, and, and the tradition started forming. But this was under the shogunate, and the shogunate decided that these women performing, these, these often sex workers performing in the Red Light District, was a little too erotic. Oh, Wow. So they stopped letting women perform it. So instead, next best thing, you get young boys to do it. Oh, yeah, you know, we did a little bit of that in Western culture theater as well. Exactly. And there's the problem. Uh, the young boys are also sex workers. Ooh. 
Yeah. So uh, wah wah. A few years later, they say, okay, actually, hold on. Young boys also aren't allowed to do this. Fair enough. So then it was all adult men performing it, performing, you know, all the roles, performing women roles as well. And just to just to make sure we didn't go down this path again, I believe that they were forced to shave their heads a bit. You you may recognize that sort of a lot of forehead look on some yes. of the yeah yeah. Uh, yeah people with the painted white faces and a lot of forehead. And sometimes with extra sort of lines on their faces, that that kabuki look, that comes from that. Uh, I understand. I, again, I'm probably wildly off on this, but but that's my understanding of, of how some of that came about. The kabuki plays tended to be a bit more, a bit more in every way. Like <laughs> like they have scenery, they have props, they have dancing, and it's not slow. It is often very erotic. Not like prurient, like they're not getting naked as far as I can tell, but it's a lot more playful and like lovers' tales and so forth happening in that. It, it, the, the clips that I saw were a lot more approachable than the no, very austere stuff. Do you feel like kabuki theater was more accessible to a larger swath of the population and not just for the elite? Do you have that impression? Well, exactly. Because again, it, it became popular within the red light district as like a more broad entertainment where all sorts of people mixed. That was also, I understand, one of the problems that the show had had with Kabuki was that it attracted people from different walks of life and they were intermingling in ways that maybe they didn't want to have happen. Huh. It's hard for me to understand exactly why you'd want to tamp down on that, but I'm sure there's a reason why. So interesting. So did you go back and take a look at the masks or whatever it was that they had on Tom Crow and GPC and compare it to actual Kabuki uh, makeup to see how similar it was? I did. It's tricky. So Crow and GPC are wearing these like wigs, these wild wigs, mm -hmm. and they are spot on. It, it seems to me recognizable in part of the tradition, though maybe the details are wrong. But from an outsider's perspective, it seems accurate. Tom is wearing this kind of mask to allow him to have that white face with the stripes that is sort of like a demon look, a Japanese demon look. I, I Again, I'm totally wrong. Um, now, here's the thing. A lot of people think that people in Kabuki tend to wear masks. They don't. Sometimes they do. But masks are a no thing. Kabuki, they put on the makeup. Huh. But also, you can't put makeup on Tom and have it look like that. He doesn't no, have a true. face. Yeah. So yeah. you have to do a mask to do that. So I don't know. I don't know how accurate or inaccurate I want to. I want to judge that. But the, I feel like they solved the problem of making Tom look enough like a Kabuki character. And that they had actually done some research into what this should look like and how it should present. Well, and this is sort of the thing, right? Because. I, I I don't actually think that everybody who worked on the show has it in for Japan and Japanese culture. <laughs> I don't honestly believe that. No, it would be weird if they were watching all of these movies created in Japan, but it was really just to undercut everything Japanese. Like, that's a super weird choice to be making. There's lots of movies out there that you could riff. Yeah. And and, and so I feel like they just like the 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 sort of making fun of surface level Japanese stuff is just I think it's just lazy joke writing more than it is intentional racism. It, I still find it exhausting to listen to, but I think that they actually do kind of find parts of Japanese culture neat. I, I, I don't know. I wasn't in the room. I can't. I can't say at this at this vantage. But I think at least some people on staff must have been into it. Hey, everybody! It's time for the Shadow Thirteen. 
It's time for the Shallow 13, 13 eyebrow mite-sized tidbits, all about today's experiment, Invasion of the Neptune Men. Go, Chris, go! Invasion of the Neptune Men sure seems a lot like a retread of Prince of Space, doesn't it? Well, turns out they were both produced by the same company, and both were written by Shin Morita. Morita wrote one other film, Hahato Kenju, which happily never seems to have been dubbed into English. Our hero, Space Chief, is played by Sonny Chiba. Sonny would go on to have a long career in acting, making it big in 1974's The Street Fighter, and would eventually be cast in American films like Kill Bill and the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Sadly, Sonny Chiba passed away from complications due to COVID in 2021. According to IMDb, a lot of the air fight sequences from this movie were taken from an earlier movie by the same studio called The Final War, in which Japan gets caught in a nuclear war between the U.S. and the USSR. Also, according to IMDb, a lot of the air fight sequences in this movie were later added into a movie called The Final War to pad it out for foreign release. So, which is it, IMDb? Toei, the production company behind Prince of Space and Invasion of the Neptune Men, would also give us Season 11's Yongari, Monster from the Deep, in collaboration with the South Korean production company. So, thanks, Toei! On to the riffing, and as our young Japanese boys run through the woods to the site where the alien ship has landed, some frenetic music plays, and Tom says, Uh, Music courtesy of Sergei Prokofiev. Sergei Prokofiev was a Russian composer from the early 20th century. He's most famous for composing Peter and the Wolf, but he also composed a piece called Dance of the Knights, which if I played it for you, you would totally recognize. Prokofiev did not do the score for this movie, but he did do the score for the 1938 film Alexander Nevsky, directed by Sergei Eisenstein. This also gets a shout-out later in the riffing. (laughs) And now a brief musical tribute to Alexander Nevsky. The film and its score, especially for its depiction of the Battle of the Ice, influenced endless films, from Conan the Barbarian to The Empire Strikes Back, to Mulan. Space Chief arrives to save the kids in his super-fast spaceship-slash-automobile, and Tom cries out, Tojo's death car! Hideki Tojo was the Prime Minister of Japan and its military commander during World War II. After the war, he was tried for his war crimes, as he oversaw the deaths of millions of civilians and prisoners of war. And he was executed afterwards. None of this involved a car, so I don't know what Tom's talking about. As a nuclear reactor is destroyed, we get this moment. The reactor! They blowed up our reactor! Ah, the mosquito spraying program is off to a great start. Suppose Rachel Carson's gonna bitch about this now. (laughs) Spicy language from Mike! Anyway, Rachel Carson was the author of the 1962 book Silent Spring, which documented the environmentally disastrous effects of DDT and other pesticides. Her book brought notoriety to the chemical industry's tactic of lying about how safe the chemicals were and led to the United States banning DDT and also led indirectly to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. We see a, uh, what is it, Uh, like a radar display? And it's got this perfect little curve on it. 
And so Tom says, well, They're invading Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome city. Buckminster Fuller was a visionary, a futurologist, someone who had his fingers in a lot of pies. We mentioned him way back in our episode on the Deadly Mantis for his Dymaxion map projection. But yeah, he also designed the geodesic dome. Or rather, he didn't invent the geodesic dome, but he did come up with the term. What is a geodesic dome, you ask? It's a spherical, or more commonly half-spherical, building. They are comparably stable for their weight, and they maximize the amount of space they enclose with a given amount of material. Plus, they look super cool and futuristic. They became kinda trendy for a while from the 60s into the 80s, and there are a few famous geodesic domes, like the Big Sphere at Epcot Center, or a similar one in Vancouver built for Expo 86, but people also made smaller dome homes to live in. But they had their drawbacks. They can't be easily made with off-the-shelf parts, and code for things like fire escapes haven't been designed with dome homes in mind. Also, it's hard to efficiently use your space if the walls are curved. Where are you going to put that Billy bookshelf? And finally, as the aliens attack Japan, Tom riffs... Gamera, get back in your kennel! See, this is a Gamuary episode after all. And that's time. So, our aliens in this movie, they have some really fun outfits. They like to travel around in these little weird metallic spacesuits that have pointy heads, and it's really fun. And on their helmets, there are these dots, like three rows of bumps. And that leads Crow to describe them as Braille helmets. They have Braille helmets. I thought that was super interesting, too. I mean, what a weird design (laughs) for a spaceship (laughs) helmet. But yeah, Braille as well is a super interesting thing. So um, I wanted to talk, especially considering I know it's January, Chris, but World Braille Day is January 4th. We missed it. I know, but in the month of January, when we celebrate our favorite of all the kaiju, we also celebrate World Braille Day. And so um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Braille and where it came from. Well, excellent. I'm all excited to learn more about Braille. I know it's got bumps, and I know you can use it to read things. I was surprised when I was reading up on it to learn that it didn't come about because somebody said, we need a system so that people who can't see can still read. You know, like, it seems like somebody should have been thinking about, like, oh, there are people who can't see, so the way we print books isn't actually going to work for them. And is there some way that we could create books that they could read on their own without having somebody to read to them? But no, that's not where it came from. It came from Napoleon. It came from war. Wait, what? Yes, it came from war. Apparently, Napoleon wanted a way for his soldiers to be able to send messages to each other in the dark without having to use their voices. So he put out this call to the people of France, to the scientists of France, to try and come up with a way that soldiers would be able to communicate to each other in the dark without using their voices. And there was somebody who came up with a variation on something called the Polybius Square. His name was Charles Barbier. He was using this in order to create something which he called night writing. Um, But he didn't come up with something that was perfect, and it didn't actually uh, end up getting used. 
But he brought it back to the Royal Institute for Blind Youths in Paris and presented it as something that might be useful there. And it was a student at that school named Louis Braille who refined it and created the system that we know today, although he created it for the French language and not for English language use. Thoughtless. I know, right? How terrible of him, right? But he created the matrix of the three rows and two columns, six dots that could be read with just the tip of your index finger and the placement of those dots inside of that uh, three by two matrix creates letters and punctuation so that you can have complete words and complete sentences um, as you are reading with your fingertips rather than your eyes. So I thought that was really fantastic. Um, It was adopted by France in 1854, which was unfortunately after Braille had actually passed away. Um, It was introduced to Britain in 1861 and adapted into the English language. And it was officially adopted for use in English for blind people to communicate in uh, 1918. So Braille's been with us for a while. Yeah, that makes some sense. All right, first off, Thank you once again, War, for giving us cool things, I guess. I guess. Uh, I wish there was um, some sort of necessity besides war that we invented things for. (laughs) Nope, it's war or porn. Those are the only things we invented things for. (laughs) People, Um, what is wrong with us? (gasps) Um, So that's one thing. Uh, The second thing is... It's interesting that it's a three by two grid, right? Because this is a binary system, right? Your finger see braille is a series of bumps and lack of bumps, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's mm-hmm. it's either on or off. And if you have six on or off things, then you have a total of sixty-four things 64. that you could be reading. Yeah, yeah, sixty-four different symbols. We need it for our twenty-six letters of the alphabet in English. And then of course they're using punctuation. So I'm curious, how close are you right now to some Braille? So I'm in my home right now. The nearest Braille that I can think of is probably in a school. I work in a school, and outside of my classroom, the numbers for my classroom are written in Braille underneath of being written in the actual numbers that represent them. So every day when I go to work, I see Braille on the walls. But in terms of a book or um, a text that a blind person might have with them in order to read. Um, I, I, I don't even know if my local library has one on the shelf without it having to be special ordered. How about you? Well, I'll tell you in a second. First off, I'll say uh, that's a really interesting point about the classrooms and that there is often Braille out in the world that you may not be noticing if you're not looking for it, so to speak, like elevators will usually have Braille numbers next to the buttons. So any elevators nearby might have it. All sorts of street signs will often have, like like uh, crossing signs or buttons might have some Braille attached to it or some some other things like that. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Of course, my my um, street crossings have the Braille and all of them have the, you know, after you press the button, it speaks to you. Um, telling you to wait, it tells you what it gives you a noise when um, it's safe to cross, and it tells you which direction is safe to cross. So Braille can do a really good job of just sort of being there 
so to speak, quietly for those who need it, not necessarily interrupting those who don't. And so I will say that the nearest Braille to me, let me just open up my wallet. I mean, just do a little Foley work here. Mm -hmm. I got a fat stack of 20s here. I got a few bills in my wallet anyways. Mm -hmm. All Canadian bills have Braille on them. I did not know that. Yeah, specifically, well, it's not quite Braille, or it is Braille, but it's not It's not written in Braille, because I wanted to make it available to people who don't read Braille, but who could use that kind of technological assistance. They didn't use the numbers. They indicate the denominations by having different numbers of full sets of dots. So it's a two by three square of dots, and the $5 bill, which is our lowest denomination, has one such set of dots. And then the $10 bill, uh, the $10 bill has two of them with a space between them. And then the 20, which is the next biggest, has three, et cetera, et cetera. I guess like, not much more, et cetera. The bills don't get that high here. But um, but yeah, they're all there as, as one of several accessibility aids on our lovely plastic currency. Oh, that's phenomenal. Which means that during the process of creating the money, they have both the printing press and then they also have to have a step at the end where they have to emboss. Is that what they would be doing in order to get those? Yeah, I believe that would be what you do to do that. It's totally, I was looking on, when I was doing my research, there were pictures of um, things that you could use in order to print something in Braille, where you would put a cardstock in between um, two, I don't know, pieces of metal or pieces of plastic that would have the, you know, uh, three rows, two column spaces so that you could put in a letter. But one of the things that the site was saying is that like, when you read Braille, you read it with your fingers and you read it from left to right, the same way that I would read as a sighted person when I am reading a page. But when I write, I can write from left to right and then read left to right. But if somebody's creating something in Braille, they can't do it left to right because they're going to take that paper, and this makes sense once they said it, they're going to take that paper and they're going to flip it over, and then they're going to read it from left to right, but it's going to be upside down from when you um, poked in to create the Braille. So you have to emboss in the opposite direction so that when you flip the card over, you're reading the correct letters in the correct order from left to right. And this blew my mind. I can't even imagine. I like. I don't... I don't know if I have the capacity <laughs> to be able to write backwards my thoughts, right, from the edge of the page. Oh, yeah, maybe they would do it. Gosh. This seems fascinating. Maybe yeah. there's some listeners out there who have some experience. Yeah. I I imagine we don't have a lot of blind listeners. I've always wondered what it would be like to try to watch MST3K blind, if, especially if you hadn't seen it before, right? If, if you lose your sight, yeah. but you remember how the episodes look, then fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I can't even imagine there being a lot of room for descriptive audio to go in because of the dialogue and then the riffing being so constant. There's hardly enough space for them to say, oh, by the way, here's a here's a car. And like, how do you even describe it to set up the joke? You know, oh, here's a spaceman with bumps on his helmet. It's a Braille helmet. Like, you don't have – it seems impossible to do, but – Or the whole record thing that they were doing. Like, one spaceman has a circular disc in the top third of his helmet. And that's what all the riffs are about when they're talking about the record that he can't find. Yeah. Oh, by the way, records are flat plastic discs. No, I, I think they know what <laughs> records mean, like, are. <laughs> but, but I mean, if you'd never – I mean, at this point in time, would they – well, that's a that's a different issue, I think. But yes, 
But I mean, I think that that's one of the things that people who create descriptive audio must be extremely cognizant of, or they might be, they have to be extremely thoughtful about when they're creating that is like how much description. Yeah, they have to make very careful choices. Yeah. So, and I imagine it means that you have to have a lot more knowledge of the community that you're communicating with than I personally have, right? Because I don't have somebody who is sightless in my life to talk about how they perceive the world and how it is different from my own and how they interact with Braille and whether they chose to learn how to read Braille, because that's a choice. Amongst the various Japanese things that Mike and the bots seem to find risible, <laughs> to use a big word, mm-hmm. is their idea that Japanese people pickle the darndest things. Like eels, right? Doesn't he say, you guys got to get out of here. It's my pickled eel field. Yes, I think pickled eel field comes up. A few other a few other things get pickled throughout it. Um, I don't know what their problem is. Pickling things is great. And the more things you pickle, the better. Seriously, pickled things taste delicious. I especially love, I mean, you know, besides just cucumbers being pickled into making what we traditionally think of as a pickle. I adore pickled asparagus on my salad. It's so good. Mm, That can be very good. I like, I mean, I like all sorts of things, but a good pickled tomato can be very good. So good. I have tomatoes in my garden when we choose to plant tomatoes in the summer. And towards the end of summer, we always get a whole bunch of green ones left behind. And I love pickling the green tomatoes. Yes. When I used to live in Portland, I had a bunch of people who would who would be growing tomatoes over the course of the summer. And I would always ask for everybody's green tomatoes at the end of it. So that because they were often not planning on doing anything with them. And I was like, you fools, this is this is treasure. <laughs> fools, Just add a little bit you? of vinegar and salt. It'll be brilliant. When we lived in New York, we would also get pickled eggs. And I find it really hard to, I, I can't find those around here. Um, but I remember enjoying them so much. And I'm like, next time I go to New York, I got to remember to get myself a pickled egg. Because I remember that being delicious. And it's been forever since I've had one. And is my memory just failing me? Chris, my memory isn't failing me, is it? Pickled Pickled eggs are delicious. I didn't have a pickled egg until well after we stopped living together in New York. What? I finally had one a few years ago. Um, yes, they are delicious, oh. it turns out. Uh, but I, I didn't eat eggs back then, so I certainly didn't eat pickled eggs because oh, that just seemed like a step right. too far. Yeah. But yeah, pickled eggs can be very good. You should just uh, go to a bar. They usually have them. Oh. I never thought to ask for a pickled egg. It's a traditional bar food, yeah. I mean, pickled onions to go inside of my martini? Sure, absolutely. Pickled jalapenos to go inside of your martini? Absolutely. All of those things. Fantastic. Also by themselves, they don't have to be in my drink. So so what is the most interesting thing that you've pickled? Ooh, most of what I've pickled has just been the green tomatoes from my garden because I have to admit... I don't really enjoy canning. Eh, canning's for suckers. Yeah, seriously. And But most of the time, the amount of things that you pickle makes it so that, all right, I, I can't take up my entire refrigerator with the things I am pickling, and I won't eat them fast enough, so I need them to be preserved. So tomatoes is about the most interesting thing that I have pickled, quite unfortunately, because I love pickles. My mom used to do the cucumbers and onions and things like that. She's fabulous. What have you pickled, Chris? You must have pickled some cool things. I've pickled several cool things. I I went through a bit of a pickling phase 10 years ago or something. And I mean, sauerkraut. 
It's a good thing to pickle. But wow, do you create a lot of that. <laughs> I have not tried to make my own kimchi. Um, here in Portland, of course, you can get your, you know, artisan kimchi pickled here at the, you know, in Portland. So. <laughs> Um, I was going to say pickled here at the source, but of course it's not. What are you talking about? <laughs> There's all of these artisan kimchi shops that have shown up around Portland these days. Oh, I see. Where they're doing kimchi in many, many different um, flavor variations. Sure. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's become a thing. The the other thing that I pickled a lot of was cucumber pickles, and uh, I, I did a few interesting varieties of them, my favorite of which was making pickles that were infused not only with the traditional pickling stuff, but also with tea. Oh. And in particular, I made some once with some Lapsang Souchong, this incredibly smoky tea. Ooh. And it was just amazing. Oh, it was a lot. That was definitely a it was definitely a specialist kind of uh, treat. But I am special. So you are that special? It's very true. Oh my goodness! Why? When was the last time you did that? Why haven't you done it more recently? Because I went to grad school and that sucked up a lot of my time and energy. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> <laughs> but the pandemic seems like a perfect time to take up pickling. I mean, everything that I read about the pandemic is just like, oh, people are taking up tie-dye. Oh, people are taking up baking bread. But there must be people out there who took up pickling during the pandemic. I mean, I'm sure there are, but I didn't. I don't know why. You didn't revisit your pickling fascination? I also had gone through a big bread phase around the same time I went through the big pickle phase, and I didn't go back to making bread during the pandemic. I'd already done that. I'm sorry. I'm five years ahead of all you all. <laughs> exactly. I just, no, no, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to stay inside and be sad. Oh. That's what the pandemic is for. We don't have another Prince of Space Invasion of the Neptune Men type episode to go to in the future, I hope. But I just want to do a final factoid about this, Chris, and I never want to talk about the Prince of Space and the Invasion of the Neptune Men again. Can we do that? <laughs> um, um, sure. Give, give, me, give me a final factoid if you have one for Invasion of the Neptune Men, and, and I'll see what I can do about making sure we never cover these episodes again. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to hold you to that. But in the meantime, I was so pleased to learn that Pearl's favorite cracker is chicken and a biscuit. Because <laughs> I, I am, I'm a fan of chicken and a biscuit. Chicken and a biscuit crackers are, in fact, my kids' favorite cracker. It is a cracker um, that my in-law family would bring on all of their picnics because you could get the big family size one and they were salty, 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 and delicious. And I guess purported to taste like chicken. Um, I don't know. Have you ever had a chicken and a biscuit cracker, Chris? I have. We had them around when I was a kid. I remember enjoying them well enough. Um, I remember then kind of forgetting they existed until I was visiting you several years ago before the pandemic and saw them in the supermarket and took a photo of them to send to my husband to be like, have you ever heard of this? 
which he had not. And he was like, wait, what is this? They don't have chicken and a biscuit crackers in Canada? I've never seen them about. They might. I don't know. Huh. It seems amazing to me because when I was, I mean, of course, I had to Google it, right? It turns out that, I mean, we have a very specific cracker. It kind of has like wavy, you know, what is that? Crenellated edges. Um, And it's a flat cracker. Um, But they have a totally different shaped cracker in the In a Biscuit line in Australia, of all places. Different shaped cracker, but they also have chicken flavor. And in the height, they had things like Vegemite flavor. Could you imagine Vegemite flavor crackers? Yeah, I'm down for that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't even, I can't even imagine because Vegemite, I mean, like you want to talk about packing a punch of taste. Bam! Vegemite! <laughs> um, but they also had like bacon flavor and they had cheddar flavor and then the biscuits disappeared. They went away. What? And last year they were brought back. And they were brought back in two flavors, drumstick flavor in a biscuit. And they're not chicken in a biscuit. They're just in a biscuit. Right. They came back in drumstick flavor and another chicken flavor. And more recently, they've come back in cheeseburger flavor. Ooh. I think it sounds fabulous. And not only is it cheeseburger flavor, you can taste the pickle in your cheeseburger in your cheeseburger flavor in a biscuit cracker. Can you taste the sesame seed bun? You know, I don't know if they're down with the sesame seed bun in Australia, but they're certainly down with the pickle. If you've been affected by the issues on this show, if you too wonder where kaiju go when they're on vacation, or if you'd like to ask us anything, get in touch with us. Our website is itsjustashow.com, and we are still somehow on Twitter, for a few more seconds at least, at It Is Just A Show. We would love to hear from you. This show is made possible by listeners like you, and like our randomly selected supporter, Jess. Thank you, Jess. For as little as $1 an episode, you can be like Jess and help us research and record this show, and you can hang out with us in a friendly Discord. And you can listen to all our super fan bonus bits. Find out more at itsjustashow.com slash Patreon, or patreon.com slash itsjustashow. Oh, and if you want to follow up on anything we mentioned today, you'll find links in our show notes. It's over at itsjustashow.com slash episode slash 126. Chris, what are we watching next? Make it something different. Make it something different. Are you ready for something big? You ready for an episode as big as the stars in the sky? Bigger than Gamera? No, not quite that big, but close. We're going to be looking at Season 3, Episode 9, The Amazing Colossal Man. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Season 3, that must mean we're back to Joel. Yep. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know if I've ever seen this, but I think I must have seen it with you long, long ago. It's about a man who becomes big and he's bald. Yeah, that's just not narrowing it down for me. I'm going to have to watch the episode to see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's pretty fun. As I remember, I haven't actually seen this one in a while, and I'm looking forward to going back to it. But until then... Until then, I just want you to know that Chris and I have solved love. Also, you know, I'm glad that that Hitler building got blown up. That couldn't have been up to any good. Take it away, theme squad.
Yes.